explanation for why we need a new building has gotten better as we've shaped talking about it, but what it simply comes down to is this. How could you not want more people to feel like you're feeling right now? And uh, to me, that's the strongest argument to have a bigger space. When you like one of your friends to be sitting with you right now and feeling the way that you're feeling right now. See to it that nobody misses the grace of God. Because what happens when people miss the grace of God is that bitterness and defilement come up. We're told in John chapter 9 that Jesus and his disciples came across a man born blind. Now there was an ancient, and what I've found out that's still in, in vogue today, what a lot of people believe today, that it's not so ancient that people that were born with something like this is because they're being punished by God. Either they're being punished for it, or their parents are being punished for it, for their sins. That being born blind means that God is punishing somebody for their sin. God, and, and the argument went like this, how, well, how could he be punished for his own sin if he was born this way, he was a baby? Well, God knew what kind of sinner he was going to turn out to be. Thanks, man. So he's punishing him in advance. Or the argument was, well, he must be punishing his, his parents for their sin because, uh, of course, the sins are visited upon, uh, upon the children. And so the parents kind of make more sense, but they had already sinned and it had been passed on. So, so the disciples get caught up in this debate when they come across this man born blind. Here they are standing there. And, and they want the debate. Because verse 3 it says, Jesus, uh, verse 3 it says, who, who sinned? Who sinned, this man or his parents? By the way, Jesus said neither. Okay, neither. He is born blind so that the works of God might someday be shown in him. And guess what? That day was there. The day had come. That God's works might be revealed. Jesus heals him, and when he does, the fun begins. The villagers who knew him as a beggar ask, well, is it really him? No, no, it can't be him because he can't be seeing now because nobody can heal somebody who was born blind. So it really can't be him. It's just somebody to look like him. And by the way, it's one of the funniest stories in all the Bible because as they're debating back and forth whether he is or not, the man is actually standing there going, I'm him. I'm the man. Yeah. But they're debating because... Because I, they just don't want to accept that there may be somebody walking around who could do this, who could heal a man born blind. Because it just, it begins to complicate things. See, it was simple to believe that he was simply born blind and God was punishing for his sin. Because if God could be punishing him for his sin, then I can. I can ignore him. I could make him beg. I don't have to take care of him. Because God certainly isn't taking care of him. See, now Jesus has thrown a monkey wrench into that. So they ask him, well, what happened? And he says, the man called Jesus. And as soon as they said that, they went, uh-oh, oh, man. For... I knew this was coming. I knew this was going to happen. The day that guy started walking around, I knew this was going to happen. So they take him to the Pharisees. Now it's a party. Anytime you get the Pharisees involved, well, now it's a party. They do the same thing. How did this happen? He said Jesus did it. He, he made mud uh, by, by spitting in it and rubbing it on my eyes. Now it's a party because the Pharisees say, well, wait a minute, hold it, hold it. He just violated the Sabbath. 
So this guy can't be from God. So obviously something's the matter here. So now they say, well, he must not have been born blind. So they actually go to his parents to find out if he really was born blind. It's funny, his parents go, he's of age, ask him. And he's already told them about 12 times that he was born blind. He's of age, ask him. And they go back and forth, and it's an, it's an amazing argument. The, 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 the rabbis call it midrash, using Scripture to argue with Scripture. And, and, and the man actually beats them at their own game. He, 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 because he knows Jesus, because he knows Jesus did it, he has no other explanation. He actually beats them at this debate. And they end it the ultimate way to end an argument. They call him a name. Now listen. If you don't even know what the argument's about and you wander in on it, if somebody is arguing and you wander in on it, which side is losing? The one who is resorted to calling the other names or the other? The name calling one is losing, right? It's what we all resort to. What we all resort to. So they look at him and they say, you were born entirely in your sins. You are a what? You're a sinner. The S word. It ends the argument for them. The S word. Sinner. You're a sinner. You're a street rat. Hey, another S word. Street rat. No. no. The S word. It ends it. You're a sinner. See, the theology was simple. You're a sinner. You were born blind. And God isn't taking care of you, so we don't have to take care of you. The theology on whether or not God punishes us for our sins is completely, entirely selfish. Because if you don't come to the conclusion that, that uh, if you don't come to that conclusion, then you might have to do something about the man born blind. But there was a worse S word at the time, actually. A worse S word as far as Israel was concerned, as far as the Jews were concerned. In John chapter 8, when actually uh, uh, Jesus is debating these same people, okay, about four chapters later, they try to end the argument by saying, are we not right in saying that you're a what? That you're a Samaritan and you have a demon? There was a worse S word back then, Samaritan. It ended the argument right there. Samaritans, notice, notice what Jesus does, though. He doesn't refute being called the S word, does he? What does he refute? Whether or not he has a demon. Jesus answered, I don't have a demon. I don't have a demon, but I honor my father. And you dishonor me by calling him a demon, by saying that he has a demon. But he doesn't refute being called the S-word. So, so, so what's happening? Is, is just the Pharisees, do they only hate the Samaritans? The Samaritans were... I, I guess Israel's rebellious cousin is the way, that, the, the way that it's always put. They lived right down the road. They lived r- almost right next to each other, and they couldn't stand each other. They absolutely could not stand each other to where the, this day that they, they think they're really insulting him, and they're winning the argument by calling him a what? A Samaritan. Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan? S-word, sinner, Samaritan, street rat. I like that. I'm going to stay with the S-words. So is it just the Pharisees that hate them? Well, when John is telling the story about the woman at the well, 
and she's shocked that Jesus asks her for a drink. A rabbi, a Jewish rabbi, a Judean, if you will, asks for a drink. John has to add something in there. He says, the Samaritan woman said, how is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink of me, a woman of Samaria? Jews do not share things in common with Samaritans. John adds this in telling the story. By the way, if you don't get it, why is this woman so shocked that this rabbi would ask her for a drink? He has to tell everybody, Jews don't share things in common with Samaritans. Like I said, the rebellious cousins, they live down the road and they hate each other. See, but Jesus doesn't seem to hold the same hatred. He doesn't jump back on the Pharisees and, and, and explain why there's no way that he could be a Samaritan. I got a feeling that you and I, I would have pulled out my family tree. You know, I'd be holding up my birth certificate. I was born in Galilee, okay, Galilee. But Jesus doesn't. The story of his encounter with the Samaritan woman is biographical proof. When we started this series, Pastor Walt told us that the character of God is learned best by what? By biography and not theology, which bothers me because I think everything could be solved by good theology. But I'll work with that. I'll work with that. There's biographical proof that Jesus doesn't feel the same way that the rest of the Judeans feel about the Samaritans, the way he treats the woman at the well, by not refuting him in, 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 in the Pharisees in that last encounter. And what he says to the woman in return, all of these things, the way that he treats her. The disciples feel differently, though. When it came time, when it came time for them to be sent out, Jesus uh, is, I'm, I'm not sure where they're at, but they're headed back to Jerusalem. They're on the way back to Jerusalem. And, and Jesus sends messengers out to let everybody know that they're coming. And, and there are, just before he enters this village, it's a Samaritan village, we're told. And it says he sent messengers ahead of him. On their way, they entered a village of the Samaritans to make ready for him, but they did not what? They did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. When his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? Wow. Wow. And I, want, and, and I, I didn't get to study much on it, but I'm intrigued by verse 53 too. Notice the Samaritans won't talk to him because he's headed where? So you can see the rancor's on both sides. The hatred is on both sides. He's headed to Jerusalem, so they won't even talk to him. I wonder what people did. I guess you had to be walking in the opposite direction to be welcomed in a Samaritan village. I'm not sure. That, that, that really intrigues me. But his disciples say, well, I, this is the excuse I've been looking for. Okay? When we went out last time, demons, you know, obeyed us and everything else. I, could, I can't wait for this. This is what I've been looking for. Do you want us to? Then what does Jesus say? But he turned and he what? And he rebuked them. So again, biographical proof that Jesus doesn't feel the same way about these Samaritans. Let's look at these cousins. Let's look at these rebellious cousins. And, and, and maybe we can understand what's going on. Why doesn't Jesus feel the same way? And what does he understand that the rest of Judea doesn't seem to understand? What is it that he sees? What is it that he knows? 
When John begins the story of Jesus and the Samaritan woman at the well, he tells us that it takes place in the Samaritan city of Sychar. The woman is at a well. Do you all remember what well or whose well it was? Jacob's. It's Jacob's well. Okay. By the way, where did Israel get their name? From this patriarch, Jacob. So we're going back to the foundations, aren't we? We're headed back to the absolute theological, biographical foundation of all of Israel, of God's people. Jacob, Yaakov, renamed Yitzrael, the one who wrestled with God and prevailed. The one who began a new relationship for his people and with God. Ones that are allowed to wrestle with him face to face, to contend with him. Come, let us reason together what God has wanted from his people ever since the beginning. Well, Jacob's well is right there. It sits about 250 feet from ancient Shechem. It is where Jacob was before he headed to Egypt. When he found out Joseph was alive and Joseph calls for his father, this is where he was living, Shechem. About 250 feet from that well. It sits between two mountains, Gerizim and Ebal. Shechem was the most important place of ancient worship. And when we say ancient worship, it's up to, if you will, up to uh, the, uh, the entrance of the kingdom and the temple and everything else. Okay? First, Abraham was led by God there in Genesis 12. The first place that God calls Abraham out, this is where he goes. He goes to this place right here. It's the place where Jacob returned from Palestine to Mesopotamia in Genesis 33. Israel's first meeting place for worship in the land of Canaan took place on Gerizim. And Ebal, according to Deuteronomy 11, 27, and Joshua chapter 8. In fact, according to Deuteronomy, Mount Gerizim becomes the Mount of Blessing. It's where Israel was blessed for the very first time. After being brought out of Egypt, when the Lord your God has brought you into the land you are entering to occupy, you shall set the blessing on Mount Gerizim and the curse on Mount Ebal. 27.12 says, when you've crossed over the Jordan, these people shall stand on Mount Gerizim for the blessing of the people. Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Joseph, and Benjamin. The Samaritans had strong, strong Biblical reason to maintain that their mountain was a holy mountain. Gerizim is the mountain the woman is talking about. You Jews say you should worship on the mountain in Jerusalem. We Samaritans worship where? On this mountain. God ordained this mountain. By the way, you just read it. Do they have a pretty good theological foundation for it? Of course they do. Also remember that Shechem was the place that Joseph was buried. They commanded him to take my bones out of Egypt and bury me at Shechem, according to Joshua 24. One interesting note that Joshua faced nearly no opposition in that part of the land where Samaria is located. His greatest battles were in the north and the south. Samaria pretty much just sits right in the middle. It's in the middle of everything. So there they are like a big, stickly rose bush in all of Israel. Can't get anywhere because of those thorns right there. Joshua 18, the first place to set up the sanctuary was in Shiloh, a Samaritan city. 
Archaeology found an altar that predates the Exodus with an inscription on it that says, dedicated to the Lord of the Covenant. Predates the Exodus. It's possible that Jacob left many worshipers behind before he went to Egypt. They have an ancient claim. But for some reason, by 1000 BCE, Jerusalem becomes the center of Israelite worship. And we don't know what happened. By that time, Shechem was the primary center of worship for a thousand years. We ask the question when we see the rebellion of the northern tribes, why was it so easy for them to rebel? They had one argument, one argument after Solomon dies. And that's it. They're gone. Isn't that right, Pastor Walt? It was overtaxing? Yeah. But it was so easy for them to be able to separate after they'd been united under only two monarchs because they knew they had somewhere to go. They knew they had their mountain. Now, according to 2 Kings 17, when the Assyrians took Samaria and the northern kingdom of Israel cap- into captivity, they had their own captivity. That was in 740 BCE. The Syrian king brings people from several other nations and he puts them in the cities in Samaria. So you understand what happened? Israel, the northern kingdom, is taken into captivity by the Assyrians. And the Assyrian king then takes citizens from other nations that he's conquered and he puts them in the cities of Samaria. The thing is, though, is that they still had people that weren't taken into captivity. The Assyrians didn't take everybody into the captivity the same way the Babylonians didn't take everybody of Judah into their captivity. So now you have foreigners and you have some uh, Israelites still living there. And then we're told that a priest that had originally been taken captive comes back to live in Bethel and he comes back and he teaches them to worship the living God. But the people also brought their gods and from their native lands and they end up worshiping both. So then this is pronounced on Samaria. Those nations worship the Lord but also serve their carved images. To this day, their children and their children's children continue to do as their ancestors did. Now you see where the split occurred. Judah looks at this and says, you guys are idolaters. How can you be worshiping both? You get it? They can now take the moral high ground and say, sinners, Samaritans, their worship is prostituted. Their worship is impure. But what did they forget? 130 years later, Judah's going to be hauled into exile. Why? For the very same reason. Babylon's going to come 130 years later and take everybody in Judah into captivity. And and you had a thousand years worth of prophets telling them why. We studied one of them. Hosea, Isaiah, all of them say, this is why you're going to be hauled into captivity. How come Judah has forgot that when they look at their cousins, the Samaritans? So they go to Babylon. Judah now is in Babylon while the northern kingdom is in Assyria, both living out their captivity. And the ones who, were, and, and the ones who go to Babylon are now reformed, if you will, under the teachings of Daniel and Ezekiel and Ezra, all of these prophets that, were, that came to them during the captivity. 
So when they return, they now feel that they're purified. They now feel that they are reformed. There's been a revival that has happened with them. So when they enter the land, they now look at their, their cousins and they shun them. Why? Because you're that. That's who you are. The Samaritans are stunned by it. Because they felt that they reflected the true faith of the fathers. But after a hundred years, after the captivity, they gave up. They gave up trying, and they just went ahead, and they built their own temple on Mount Gerizim. After about 200 years of this kind of worship on their own temple, John Hyrcanus, a Jewish leader, comes and destroys it. And when he does, after that, the two groups never speak to each other again. They don't have anything to do with each other. By Jesus' day, Jews felt that Samaritans defiled everything they touched. By the way, they take the ritual purity laws, and now they apply them to people, which, by the way, was, was the one thing that, that I believe angered Jesus the most, is when you begin to treat people by rejecting them and claim that you're keeping the law at the same time. So it's remarkable for a Jew to even speak to a Samaritan. And now you have Jesus in this Samaritan city by Jacob's well, by the way, their shared ancestor, speaking to this Samaritan woman. So what was the split about? How to worship. Simply how to worship. And where to worship. Who was right? Who worships the right way? This is what the split was about. Which mountain? So forth and so on. Which priest? The Judeans look down on them because they are of mixed ancestry and have a history of idolatry mixed with worship of God. That's why the Judeans look down on them. The Samaritans look down on the Judeans because they don't have the right place. It's this mountain that Moses blessed. It's this one right here. I'm going to have to stretch your imagination just a little bit because it was real hard for me to do this when I came across this. What has Judah forgotten? What don't they see? How come Jesus can see it and they don't? How come Jesus can see in these Samaritans just what you learned about them when it was obvious from history? What is it that has blinded them to that? Ezekiel, by the way, an exilic prophet, which means Ezekiel came to to, uh, Israel while they were in exile in Babylon. You understand? They're in exile in Babylon. Ezekiel, I believe, was sent there to comfort them because exile is a horrible place. It's a terrible place. Ezekiel comes to let them know that that they're coming home. Remember the opening of Ezekiel to show the throne room of God. Okay, Let them know that God is still on his throne. I know you're in a bad place, but God still is with you, and he's going to deliver you. But in chapter 16 in Ezekiel, it's, it's, a, it's a nasty chapter. By the way, you might want to rethink reading it in the New Revised Standard Version until sundown tonight. Because in the New Revised Standard Version, they don't care to clean up the word prostitute or harlotry. Okay, It's laid there plain. And in that one chapter... He calls Israel a prostitute at least 40 times. Judah, by the way, this is the Babylonian captivity. 
telling Judah why they are in captivity. Which, by the way, was the same reason that, that Israel was in the Assyrian captivity. I have to ask Pastor Walton to make sure I'm getting this history right because I'm, I'm, I'm not real good at the history like I'm not going north, south, east, or west. Okay. Am, I, am I okay so far, Matt? The Assyrian captivity, the Babylonian captivity? All right, got it. Okay. That's what I need. But the Judeans forgot why they were hauled into captivity. What's amazing is that they come back from the captivity and they look at Samaria and they say, you guys are prostitutes. When actually they were hauled into captivity for the same reason. And they've forgotten that. In fact, in, in that whole chapter in Ezekiel 16, calling them over and over and over again, he, said, he has this interesting part in verse 46 and 47. He says, your elder sister is what? Your elder sister is Samaria, who lived with her daughters to the north of you, and your younger sister, who lived to the south of you, is Sodom. So he says, you're, 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 this is one of your problems, Okay. You not only followed their ways and acted according to their abominations, within a very little time, you were more corrupt than them in all your ways. The prophet reminds them that they're more corrupt than who? Than Sodom and Samaria. The Judeans have forgotten this. They actually have the nerve, if you will, the audacity the pious self-righteousness to look down on someone else for doing the same thing that they were doing. They've forgotten their common ground. To bring it forward, the common ground is is that we're all what? We're all sinners. The prophecy goes on to tell them this. This was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease, but did not what? Did not aid the poor and needy. The prophet actually says Sodom's problem was they were inhospitable. That's what the prophet says. No matter what you think, no matter what we've been told about why Sodom was destroyed, the prophet says they were destroyed because they did not aid the poor and the needy. They were haughty and did abominable things before me. Therefore, I removed them when I saw it. And then he says this. He says, Samaria has not committed half your sins. You've committed more abominations than they and have made your sisters appear righteous by all the abominations you've committed. Sodom looks good compared to you. Samaria looks good compared to you. By the way, Samaria is twice as hospitable as you are, twice as, as, as merciful as you are when it comes to the poor and the needy. Tell me, everyone, tell me, did Jesus have this in mind when he made the hero, the hero of his most famous parable about being hospitable, a Samaritan? You think this is what he's thinking about? You think he's trying to remind Judah where they came from and what the prophet said about them? A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho 
and fell into the hands of robbers who stripped him, beat him, and went away, leaving him for dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So the first one to pass him by is who? The priest. The most holy man in all of Israel. So likewise a Levite, second most holy man in all of Israel, came to the place and saw him. He passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, while traveling, came near him. And when he saw him, he was moved with pity. And we went to him, and he bandaged his wounds, having poured oil and wine on them. Then he put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, said, Take care of him, and when I come back, I'll repay you whatever more you spend. Then he asked the question at the end, Which of these robbers, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? And the guy can't even say it. The lawyer can't even say it out loud. I saw a movie, an animated movie once, where he stumbles over it. He goes, it was this, it was this. He even thinks that if he says the name, he's going to be unclean till evening. So what was his answer? It was the one who showed him what? Who showed him mercy. And then Jesus said, Go and what? Go and do likewise. He's telling him, go and be like the who? The Samaritan. The very one that you think is unclean. In fact, he's telling him right there to go do it to who? Go do it to the Samaritans. It's amazing when you talk about trying to be the character of God, and that's the section where we are today, trying to be the character of God, the one thing that will always stand in the way and cause a bitter root and defilement of our very selves to pop up is self-righteousness. Hey, it's good for you to walk around knowing that you're righteous. It's good for you to walk around assured that you're completely righteous, that you are right with God. Do you know today that you are right with God? How many here believe that Jesus Christ died for you, forgave your sins, the sins that you committed, the sins you are committing, the sins you will commit? How many believe that? Then you're right with God. You can be completely assured. The problem is, is that when we forget where that righteousness came from, that we forget who we are, we forget where we came from, we forget where, where our righteousness came from, And when we do, we then fail to give the grace of what? The grace of God. And when we fail to give the grace of God, then a bitter root forms. That bitter root had been forming for a thousand years. Because somewhere along the line, somebody didn't stand up and say, you know what? You're my brother. You and I came from the same place. What are we arguing about? Which mountain? The right way? I'm condemning you for sins that I've committed myself? Who do we think we are? Who do we know we are? 
Who do we believe we are? When the bitter root takes defilement, then we can actually stand and call someone else unclean. When the bitter root takes defilement, instead of helping the blind man by the road, we can now call fire down upon him because he's obviously a sinner that God is punishing. And in a self-righteous state, it's a whole lot easier to call down fire than it is to show mercy. We'd rather kill them because the poor and the needy are, are reminders to me every day that I'm not who I'm supposed to be. They remind me every day of how, how, how ungrateful I really am for what I've got. So it's a whole lot easier to call fire down on them because then it would eliminate them. And then we could walk away patting ourselves on the back. I can feel justified. By the way, when the lawyer asked him the question, Lawyer asked him the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said, what do the commandments say to you? Lawyer got it right. Love God, love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said, good, you got it. Go do it. And then it says, the lawyer wanting to justify himself says, ah, but who is my neighbor? He wanted to walk away treating his neighbor still inhospitably. He wanted to walk away and still commit the, the, the sin of Sodom, if you will, but still look good on the outside. Jesus said, I'm not letting them get away with it today. So he makes the hero of the parable a who? The one guy he wants to bring fire down on. The one guy that he feels better than. The one guy that's living proof to him that God likes me and doesn't like you that much. I know it's a joke, but he's wearing the T-shirt that says, God loves you, but I'm his favorite. What's amazing about this is how it happened to two people that were, two groups of people that were so close. Two groups of people that were so familiar. I went to look up the, 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 the uh, origin, if you will, of the old saying, familiarity breeds contempt. And it hit me in reading a, 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 an article about it in, psych, in Psychology Today uh, talking about relationships is that the reason familiarity does is because the more familiar we get with somebody, the closer that we, that we get with somebody, the more I'm reminded by my own shortcomings in that person. It's completely selfish, by the way. It's, it's, it's what our selfish nature does when we try to get close to somebody else. So whoever came up with it hit the nail on the head, didn't they? Why? What's amazing is, is that these two groups of people had so much in common. And now they're using each other to stand on the shoulders of them to look better because I'm not as bad a sinner as you are, and vice versa. I read an article by Tim Stafford, who writes for Christianity Today. And using parallels to biblical times, he said that Christians in the United States sometimes think we live in Babylon. We live as refugees in the United States, stuck in a culture that trumpets values hostile to our faith. So, so Christianity in North America, they feel they live in Babylon. They hunker down in this fortress mentality. And he goes, actually, you know, we live something more like in Samaria. 
Then he explains the Samaritans lived just down the road in Jesus' day, and they had everything in common. He says, surprisingly, groups that are closest to each other may speak or spark the strongest enmity. The world outside Rwanda and Yugoslavia had trouble just keeping straight the differences between Hutu and Tutsi, Bosniak, Serb, or Croat, even as the groups themselves were slaughtering each other over those differences. We look at the Middle East today and the violence, and we, we try to understand the rancor between Shiite and Sunni Muslims. People who are the same but not quite the same can somehow generate more hatred than two groups who are completely opposite. And he says, the problem is not that my religion is strange. The problem is that my religion is familiar. Like Samaritans and Jews, Christians and non-Christians have a shared worldview. Our Western traditions, which include the Bible, a shared point of origin, well-defined points of contention. We're familiar with what each other believes, but we're suspicious of one another, so we start off with a grudge. So even the non-Christian in, in, in the United States has some sort of inherent value. They, they want the same thing we want. They don't want anybody hungry. They don't want anybody naked. They don't want anybody homeless. They want the same things we want. So then begin to narrow that down. What are the grudges we have against other Christians? And then forget the world, other Christians. What about within our own church? Our world church? What about within this building right now? Pastor Walt did a wonderful job last week of talking about if, if this is sure of what we don't miss, then the three things that don't exist or can't exist with us is fear, anger, and hatred. But if we truly believe what God has done for us and we walk around with his character, then what are we so afraid of? What are we so afraid of? What are we so angry at? And why do we hate so much? I want to introduce you to a term as you leave here today and we talk about being the character of God. It's a term that I came across that I haven't quite fleshed out, but it's a term called the latent church. I know there's a war over the emergent church and the purpose-driven church, and there's all kinds of churches out there. There are movements and churches and everything else, but I want to introduce you, talking about other people, to keep from falling into this trap, to keep from bitter roots growing up between us, I want to introduce you to the latent church, if you will. The latent church is a, it comes from a theologian. His name is Jürgen Moltmann. He came to faith during World War II. He was a captured German soldier in a British POW camp. Scottish women brought the enemy prisoners home-baked goods. Can you imagine that? an enemy prison camp in England during the Second World War, responsible for the London Blitz and everything else. These women are bringing them baked goods, and one happened to bring a Bible. He was touched by their gesture, and he began to read it. After the war, he went back home to become a pastor, became a professor in the German church hierarchy. 
Later, he begins to question a religious system that stratifies bishops, priests, laypersons, and then sets them all against unbelievers. The system that, that puts together and says, you know what, we're all an army. And we have leaders, we have generals, and, and, and we give them marching orders, and then they unleash them onto unbelievers. Go get them! Moltmann said, didn't Jesus call his followers brothers and sisters, implying something more like a family than a corporation? A family more than a battle line being drawn? Doesn't God reign over all the world, including those outside the fold? The church is where Christ is, Moltmann decided. The manifest church comprises those who accept Christ and embrace the gospel. There is a manifest church. There is a made-known church. By the way, it's right here. The first two of you that walked in here and unlocked the doors, Christ was where? He's there. There's a manifest church. There are people that say, I believe, and they gather and they congregate. It's made known. There it is. But he says also, there is a latent church. They may not be manifest yet. But doesn't Christ exist in them also? He's in the place where the poor, the hungry, the sick, and the prisoners are to be found. As you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. This is the latent church. You cannot read the Bible without hearing the loud message that God cares for the displaced, the downtrodden, the oppressed, the humble, the needy. In other words, those who know their lostness and who long to be found. What he's saying is that rather than going out and looking at someone as an enemy or even break it down even further, because I don't think any of us try to go out and say, well, he's my enemy. I don't think that that we try to do that. He's a non-believer. He's my enemy. I don't think any of us do that. I believe you're all more mature and loving than that. But what we do do is go out and we see a mission project. We see somebody who needs to be saved, which, by the way, do they? Yes, but in looking at them just that way, we now place ourselves in the position of the Judeans and we forget that we too need to be saved. And we look at them and we say, well, they need something I've got. And, they be- and we give, begin to pat ourselves on the back. And then we begin to judge them by whether or not they're going to accept this wonderful gift that we give them. And we forget that they've got worth outside the fact that they would ever come to Christ. And by the way, people have figured out when they're being treated like a project. They know it, don't they? The Beatitudes spell out that restless discontent of the latent church, Moulton's phrase, may already be close to God. Did you ever think that they may already be close to God? Simply because they're poor and needy, they might be closer to God than you and I will ever dream. C.S. Lewis once said, he goes, I don't think God prefers the poor. I don't think the poor are his favorites, but they've got no reason to pretend. And they have no trouble holding out an empty hand. He said, think about it. 
The rich act as, this, as though this life will never end. The poor feel hunger pangs for something more. Those who mourn sense the rupture of a world severed from God and thus edge closer to the Father who promises to make all things new. Peacemakers and the merciful, whatever their motivation, strive for harmony, for a human family restored. The self-righteous always forgets those two things. We forget that we are sinners in the need of grace of God, and we forget that God is already at work and in love with everyone who we're trying to save. A hospice nurse once wrote, she said before she goes into a room, she goes, if I forget that God goes ahead of me and think instead that I'm bringing God into the room, I can have an air of smugness. I feel pressure to say the right thing, try to impress the patient and the staff. In short, I take myself too seriously. I need the constant reminder that God precedes me in that room and that person in the bed has a story that I need to hear and that I can learn from. We don't tend to view people that way, though. Unclean. Sinners. Samaritans. They need my reform, not my grace. They need me to call fire down on them. Jesus saw the Samaritans as somebody God already loved. And that's why he could treat them the way that he did. He treated them accordingly. My father loves you. I will treat you accordingly. It changes the message, by the way. Love always does. It's the only thing that truly does change the message. Grace is the only thing that changes the message. Grace is the only thing that matters when it comes to God's character. Changes the results, too. Those same disciples, especially James and John, that are calling down in Acts, we're told that Philip goes to where? city of Samaria, and he proclaims what? Proclaims the Messiah to them. So there was great joy in that city. A little later, it says, when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and who? John. John. According to John chapter 8, it was James and John said, let's call fire down upon them. John's doing what now? He's going sure to make sure that no one misses the grace of God. He's going to make sure they receive the Holy Spirit. He doesn't look at the Holy Spirit anymore as something that belongs to him because he's of Judean descent. The Holy Spirit is a gift of God that needs to be given. See that no one misses the grace of God. How Jesus treated the Samaritans reflected directly on how now the disciples who at once called down fire upon them are now making sure that they don't miss the grace of God. Peter and John laid hands on them and they received the Spirit. After Peter and John testified and spoke the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem proclaiming good news to how many villages of the Samaritans. They're being won by the same disciples who had called fire down on them just a couple of months before. Ask yourselves, what do they see? What do the Samaritans of today see in us? Philip Yancey reminds us in his book, um, Vanishing Grace, 
He says, evangelicals led the fight for women's suffrage and the abolition of slavery. Amen? But they also led the fight against both movements. African-American pastors, many of them evangelicals, spearheaded the civil rights movement, even as white evangelicals in the South largely opposed it. In the 1980s, Jerry Falwell urged American Christians to buy gold cougarans and to promote U.S. investment in South Africa in an effort to shore up the apartheid regime. Currently, evangelicals take a prominent role in supporting pro-life legislation while also championing the death penalty, gun rights, and military ventures. What are we telling them? What do they see when they see the church? That's the latent church looking at the manifest church. What do they see? What message have we given them? See, when I read that, I started feeling good about myself against the evangelicals. Those evangelicals. Lord, would you like me to call fire down upon them? Like if I had been alive and had an opportunity, I would have been on the right side of every one of those movements. And I know that I wouldn't have. Do we think that nobody's noticed this discord between us? That not only do we not get along with the world, we don't get along with other Christians. We don't get along with other Adventists. We don't get along with other people that go to Grace Point. Do we think that just nobody noticed? They noticed. That's why they're not here. We need to see to it that nobody misses the grace of God. Would you have ever, ever imagined or dreamed that if you had lived back then that you would have been a Samaritan? I never did until I began to understand the history of the Samaritans. And in some ways, the way they worship, there's still about 500 to 1,000 of them left today. They're almost in the same place. Christian tourists love it, and they love to go at Passover because they still sacrifice a Passover lamb. By the way, they feel they can because they still have their temple. They're still there. Judah has been turned upside down three or four times since then, and they're still there. I wonder now, though, if we found a way to see to it that they have not missed the grace of God. The character of God, being it. Let's recognize it in ourselves, recognize it in those we're trying to win, and let's make sure they don't miss his grace. Let's pray. Father, we want to thank you so much, Lord for being with us, for staying with us. We love that you are with us, although we are a stiff-necked and stubborn people. We ask that you continue to go with us, that you continue to guide and lead. And most of all, Lord, help us to begin to look at other people the way that you looked at the Samaritans. Help us to recognize this latent church. I hope this is a, a word like yeast that will grow in us and that it will become part of being the point where your grace meets their need. We thank you that you met our need today for worship, our need today to see each other, to be together. We ask that we can do this for more and more and more people. Bless this family, Lord. Keep them safe. 
And as the week goes by, help them to deliver your grace and that no one misses it. We thank you in the name of Jesus, and we praise him for certainly he is the only one that deserves it. In his name, amen.